This is the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, sculptor and mixed-media artist Anthony Bennett talks about his collaboration with Tim Daniel, Professor of Soil Microbiology. Bittersweet Air. Hello, my name's Anthony Bennett. I'm an artist based in Sheffield. Collaborating uh, for the Festival of the Mind this year with Professor Tim Daniel in Animal and Plant Sciences. It's uh, quite a story how I got to meet him. In 2016, I took part in the Festival of the Mind. I collaborated then with Professor Duncan Cameron, whose main research uh, is about the soil, the soil that we depend on every day. And at this very moment, I'm sat on the edge of a wheat field. The sun's out. It's uh, an arable area near Worksop. And I'm looking out over this uh, not so healthy looking field. The ears of wheat that I'm looking at uh, look decent. But I can't say it's like the wheat field that we imagine. Yeah, in that sort of perfect bucolic English landscape. Very, I suppose, industrial looking. And the soil itself, it doesn't look healthy. It's got this sort of greenish sort of stain on the surface and it's all sort of cracked. And I'm sure it's, you know, nearly harvest time. But um, I suppose this is what got interesting. And this is why I wanted to take... Uh, my sort of questions further and it's about this soil this soil that it's full of stones but uh, it doesn't inspire you as to the health of it essentially that's my artwork is very much inspired by the people who are trying to do something with this soil they're thinking about the future now what is the future for our soil and what is the future for food production across the country yeah, and, and these scientists, you know, they, they sort of hidden away. You know, it's up to people like me, I suppose, who's got the interest to try and tell people what they're trying to do. You know, the, the ethics behind it and the, the great things they're trying to do for us and the people of the world. The, with all the problems we're facing these days, Brexit looming and isolation and the markets seemingly about to take control of food supply... We're going to find out pretty soon how screwed up that system, the food supply system and the and agriculture, farming, you know, what it is. I mean, it's, it's a strange thing, farming. It's like when I was a kid, you know, I used to go fishing in the countryside with my dad and, you know, to get to the rivers, you were so many times you had to cross fields and I remember these barbed wire fences and the electric fences, but the barbed wire ones, they quite often had dead birds hanging off them, dead crows to ward off other crows. And the, those borders were sort of saying, you know, you don't go any further than this. This is where you stop, you know, this is where your thought stops. And to me, that's like this bucolic England is, is more of an occult England. Things are hidden. Our food production is hidden from us. In a way, the sort of, the scientists are sort of hidden away who are trying to help this. 
I mean, with the tractors ploughing down Whitehall a few weeks ago, demanding that in the international trade talks that National Farmers Union is listened to and we don't do a deal whereby tonnes of imported cheap food comes from other countries, especially America, that isn't up to the high standards that farmers, you know, have sort of lived with today, have uh, created. So this sort of recent anti-expert sort of thing that's been going on in the media, and it's been very much part of the Brexit thing. I did a lot of artwork. I had an exhibition in Sheffield a couple of years ago. It's called The Gene Genie. And it was about the public's perception of scientists and science. With the sort of anti-scientist sort of narrative at the time, and my son was about to, you know, start on further education. And I thought, you know, if he was thinking about science, you know, why would he want to enter a world of sort of research into, you know, to help the planet in the future to food and everything? You know, why would you go down that path when you see people, the mass populace sort of pillorying those scientists for all sorts of reasons? I mean, the extreme version is sort of genetic modification. That, that word GM has sort of become this sort of monster, which it really isn't, you know. The, the, the scientists who are working with this are got the, you know, the utmost morals and ethics. I find it very, very toxic all the discussions around scientists and science but at that time the exhibition was really well received all the works were for sale and one piece which I used an image of Peter Rabbit from Beatrix Potter and I sort of digitally manipulated it it showed sort of giant carrots and a Peter Rabbit devouring a, a giant carrot and he had two heads and Mr. McGregor was charging through the fields with his guns, you know. That print in particular, I sold a couple, and one of the buyers was Professor Daniel. I'd not met him before, but uh, selling the artwork uh, introduced me to him, and uh, as uh, with all great collaborations and whatever, it, um, conversations happened down the pub, which sadly can't happen at the moment, really. I was telling about my interest in the soil, and uh, the future of it, what's happening to it. Because I was mostly interested in in phosphorus, really. This is in sort of earlier work I'd done. I sort of heard that phosphorus, which we depend on to grow our food, we dump it in huge amounts on our crops with through phosphates. It's uh, that's dug out of the the ground places like Africa, Morocco, uh, some places in the USA and whatever. And basically for a couple of hundred years, these companies, chemical companies, have been scouring the world looking for new resources of phosphates. And uh, they've not really found <laughs> any more. And the chances of finding more soon, uh, who knows what the chances are, but, but they reckon that the current rate of extraction we're going to run out of phosphate fertiliser in 80 to 100 years. That blew my mind. You know, that in a couple of generations, there could be no phosphorus. The, the demonstrations on the streets might be about phosphorus. Part of the climate change whole discussion, I'm sure, 
Then I went to a, the university Christmas lecture and it was talking about nutrients and it sort of talked about phosphates and potassium, which is essential, which is, you know, I learned that it's readily available to, all, to plants in the soil. It exists in rocks, all, all sorts of things. It's freely available for plants to take up. But the other one I never really thought about was uh, nitrates, which is probably just as important as, if not more important, than phosphates. And I never really considered what nitrogen is, where it is. At this lecture, I learned that nitrogen is fixed in the soil by lightning. So when this massive charge goes through the atmosphere, it fixes the nitrogen that's in the air and sort of sends it down to the earth. Again, this sort of blew my mind. I started to, I just quickly looked up the composition of air. And there's more nitrogen in the air than oxygen, which again, blew my mind. And when I met Tim, and he said that his research was about nitrogen, was about nitrates, how plants get hold of nitrogen. I'd, I'd learned previously about um, mycelium. Now mycelium is this fungal network that exists in the soil. You know, when you're walking along, it's microscopic, you, you can't see most of it. And, you know, for every footstep you take, if you plant measured under your foot, there's about 300 miles of mycelium that exists in the earth underneath that. Cutting a long story short, I learned that, you know, it was fungus that created the soil in the very first place. You know, a long, long, long time ago. And plants can't, you know, they came before plants, fungus came for us, but plants can't actually get its nutrients for itself. For millions of years, plants have relied on mycelium, you know, relied on a symbiotic exchange, whereby when a seed is planted, it sends out its roots and it sends, sends out chemical signals to attract mycelium. And then the mycelium is attracted to it and the plant does a deal. Uh, it's called a mutualistic symbiosis, whereby the plant says, right, you uh, mycelium, you want sugar, you want carbon, you want uh, sugar, but I want nutrients. And the plant can't get the nutrients itself, so it relies on the mycelium or some other mechanism to get its nutrients. So for millions of years, plant through photosynthesis sequestered carbon. It's done a deal through its roots with the mycelium, whereas the uh, mycelium has been given the sugars, the carbon it needs, and in return, the plant is given the nutrients it needs. So this is a very happy sort of thing. But then I learned that, I mean, looking at the soil in front of me, the mycelium isn't there. These threads that go on for miles and miles and miles, when a field is ploughed, it just cuts all the threads. All these systems, mycelium systems, that is all around us in the soil, in agricultural terms, they're cut up. So they can't provide the plants with the nutrients they need in any you know, significant quantities. So we have to do it. The Green Revolution came along, needed to feed millions of people and industrialization. And uh, we realized that you know, for the plants to get these nutrients, we have to give it to them because the mycelium isn't able to. So that's basically, you know, how we've existed for quite a long time.
But now, with sort of issues around climate change, uh, we realise there's greenhouse gases. We learnt about greenhouse gases some time ago and the ozone layer and all sorts. And so 10, 15 years ago, it was on everybody's lips. And when, during the conversations with Tim in the pub, he, uh, he was talking to me about uh, nitrous oxide and how that is 300 times more damaging as a greenhouse gas than uh, carbon dioxide. My ears pricked up. Then he told me how his research was about trying to minimise, to decrease this release of this uh, terrible potent gas, this thing called nitrous oxide. And I mean, to me, I'd never really thought it before. Nitrous oxide to me, when I was a kid, it was like what dentists used to knock you out, but then that was banned. And then when my wife had, you know, the kid, it was nitrous oxide was she went for it you know to relieve the pain the gas and air that was the nitrous oxide and you know in between screams you know the big glug of nitrous oxide and, and the other thing is like in the sort of capsules the sort of soda stream things and it was always known as laughing gas I always imagined it as a lattice gas I mean in the last few weeks strangely enough the um, it's been in the news because it's a party drug. I mean, I've sort of been researching this for a while, but in the Urban Dictionary, it's uh, it's known as sweet air. This party drug. When I was talking to Tim about this uh, sweet air, the negative impact on the planet was obviously I in my mind, and the expression bittersweet air came up in conversation and Tim sort of said it at virtually the same time. So the title of our piece, Bittersweet Air, is about that. Yeah, so it's got so many negative sort of uh, things these days. So many negative things associated with it. So I think nitrogen itself, as well as all nutrients that is going to feed our planet. I mean, that, that, you know, the population of this planet is going to be like 50 billion, you know, pretty soon, or some ridiculous figure, and all these people have got to be you know, fed. They've got to eat. Everything we can do, all the research that's going on right across the world about feeding things, we've got to give these scientists who are incredibly ethical and moral, we've got to give them the space to to try new things, to uh, investigate natural processes and that we've corrupted, basically. And, you know, the regeneration movements which are trying to reintroduce mycelium into the soil where you don't plough a field, but, you, you know, you work with nature. The chemical industry itself has to raise its game. It has to look at the process where we dump this stuff onto the soil and forget about it. You know, stuff gets washed off into streams and rivers. It's like phosphates and nitrates. It washes off into the into streams, then into rivers. And, you know, the rivers of this country have never looked so green and verdant, really. But along with that, the soil's washed away because, you know, the mycelium that holds the soil together, is it's not there anymore. It's just washing away with everything else. And uh, 
I mean, the ultimate example of it is in America, in the agricultural land there, where the Dust Bowl that happened, you know, sort of nearly 100 years ago, but even, you know, a few years ago, five years ago, there was a big Dust Bowl incident in uh, Alabama, I think it was, or Arizona, that lifted six foot of soil that just turned to dust into the air and just threw it away. And the fields just disappeared. They just disappeared, sort of crazy. And soil is finite. As uh, Duncan Cameron said to me once, there's an American president, I can't remember it offhand, but the president said, you know, he who, the nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. And that is, you know, pretty amazing, considering most of the planet, there's about six inches of the stuff. It takes thousands of years to generate a tiny bit of extra soil and, you know, climate change, weather patterns changing, arid areas increasing. It's just going the opposite way quicker than we can do this. So we're talking about remedies and new ideas. And Tim's aim with his research is to decrease the amount of nitrous oxide that is emitted after it's used as a fertiliser on the soil. I mean, the ammonium-based sort of fertilisers, they do so much, but in the process of its sort of decay or transformation while it's feeding the fan, you know, these huge amounts of nitrogen, that is measurable, uh, which is, you know, what bittersweet air alludes to, is released into the atmosphere. And, you know, identifying, you know, on, in global terms, the amount that can be saved, this greenhouse gas, the amount it can be reduced by, so it has a less effect, but still betters, you know, uh, agriculture, maybe increases yield, among, um, you know, alongside many, many other uh, ways that they've identified for using nitrate fertiliser more efficiently, uh, you know, just to, so they can get the most out of, you know, a small amount of fertiliser. I mean, I've been learning about these weird little things called rhizobia, which is a bacteria which, again, has been there since the dawn of time, that uh, plants have had a symbiosis with that. Basically, they, they live in the soil and the plant gets into the plant because it's the plant uses these rhizobia, because rhizobia, again, because the rhizobia want carbon uh, through sugars and the plant wants nitrates. These little bacteria can actually fix uh, some nitrogen from the air around it. So, and the plant itself can switch these rhizobia on and off, on and off. It's, it's, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. But as an artist, it just fills your mind with incredible images of, you know, these exchanges these organisms microbes and mycelium that the humans are trying to do what these symbionts have done for millions of years but we're not doing very well while there was plentiful phosphates and everything about it's uh, we could get away with it but with the rate of population increase we've got to be efficient we've got to try artificial soils we've got to try uh, hydroponic, aquaponic systems. In the West, you know, it's very easy in the uh, sort of privileged, well-fed, full-belly West 
Western thing, it's very easy to sort of think, oh yeah, organic farming, that'll reintroduce them, you know, all the natural nutrients and we're not putting anything fake on the soil and all this sort of thing. But, you know, that's a tiny, tiny thing. You know, it's like that's not going to feed the planet at all. It's, uh, you know, fine. It's a great way to live. You know, eating organically, growing it yourself, fantastic, if you can afford to do that. But, you know, 99% of the uh, planet ain't going to do that. You know, the situation's going to get worse. Genetic modification, again, uh, as long as it's not controlled by corporate things, you know, academia has got a huge role to play investigating how, you know, humans, again, for hundreds of thousands of years have bred different plant strains that have mutated crops through their genes by physical, mechanical means, and now... Now we understand the genomes, you know, affect through things, ethical things like gene editing. You know, there's real, real benefit for the planet. So anyway, anyway, getting back, sort of I imagined, talking about nitrous oxide, I imagined this thing that I'd never imagined before, which is all around me, this thing called nitrogen and nitrous oxide, these gases, and I sort of imagined lots of balloons Lots of balloons around me. It's a strange... I mean, the word is Anthropocene. It's a sort of strange Anthropocene period we're in at the moment. Anthropocene means it's the period of time since man's impact on the Earth uh, became measurable. You know, the mechanical impact we've had uh, through agriculture, industry, or whatever. And uh, you probably see the word Anthropocene being used more and more in years to come. But I imagine this Anthropocene, this thing that man has created, that the human race has created, that is sort of entering the air from the soil. What we need is to have an impact on that, this balloon creature that I've got in my head. So it's uh, my idea uh, for Bittersweet Air is to create a character that uh, will be in a installation form. It might be in a film or a performance form. It's based around a balloon dance. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, balloon dances in burlesque performances, but the idea is this, the audience, the people, they encourage balloons to be popped. It's like a sort of kind of strip tease, but I imagine that sort of scenario where, you know, you're encouraging a scientist to be successful sort of reducing these bubbles these balloons so the idea is to create performance uh, a balloon dance for this piece i'm collaborating with a drag artist incredible makeup artist called giselle or the other giselle via instagram is an incredible makeup artist we're going to collaborate to produce this little performance and installation that uh, hopefully so viewers who don't know the science will get it, will get the burlesque context and will want, as the scientist does, to get rid of these excess bubbles of uh, nitrous oxide. That's what we're going to try and do. And the sun's out and I'm looking over the uh, wheat field. 
long may this be able to happen. I just hope that through my art, you know, and the way it's disseminated, shared across the planet, will enthuse people to question what's beneath their feet and what rely on and the fact that this six inches of soil and the fact that it rains is the hundred percent the reason we can exist on the planet. Without either of those, <laughs> there's no human race. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.